Hi, this is Steve from Retroman Blog, and welcome to episode nine of my special Retrosonic podcast series, The Lockdown Lowdown. This is where I invite some of my musical pals in to talk about their various influences and uh, experiences over the years. Uh, sort of like a Desert Island Discs soundtrack of our lives uh, kind of idea. So I'm very pleased to welcome to our virtual studio, Mr. Ian Greensmith, aka Vic Templar, Herbie Greensmith, Vic Flange, Dr. Magnus Syke. Drummer, author, DJ, promoter, retired cricketer and gardener, and at one time member of the Dentists, the Sine Waves, Armitage Shanks, the Dirty Contacts, Yaskoin the Ascoins, and Nuevo Ramon 5. So, uh, you can probably guess it's going to be quite a long interview. (laughs) Welcome, Ian. Nice to see you. Hi. Nice to see you. Yeah. I thought what we'd do, um, you've obviously got a lot of varied musical adventures um, to talk about, so uh, let's, um, let's start off... At the very beginning, what was your earliest musical memory? You know, that first sort of light bulb moment when you, a music, a bit of song or something really hit you. Yeah, there, there's a, a couple that we can carbon date. And the earliest turns out to be seeing the crazy world of Arthur Brown on top of the pops and being absolutely petrified by this guy that you would probably all <laughs> seen the, the video on YouTube. But this, this weird sort of a straggly guy with a beard and his head alight. <laughs> and I was, and that was in the chart in um, July, August 68. So I was just over three years old, but I can remember being around my grandparents' house and seeing that and just thinking, this, this is awful. This is terrible. And, um, and then a much nicer memory that, um, that is very vivid to me, but it, down the years I'd wondered if I'd dreamt it because it's a very dreamlike memory but it's of going into the um, refectory canteen at Butlin's Holiday Camp in Bognor. And um, I'm wearing a, a red cardigan with white piping and my sister is in a little push chair. And the, the, the place smell of Farley's rusks. That, that's, I can still smell. It's very, very vivid, potent to me. And over the Tannoy, they're playing this record, Say a Little Prayer, which... Years later, I find out it's by somebody called Aretha Franklin. Down the years, I sort of think, well, I think I've invented that memory. But then when I went to the Guinness Book of Hit Singles and looked up when that was in the chart, it was in the chart in September 68, which was when we were at holiday in Ogna. So I guess it, it is something that, that is a real memory. And um, yeah, what a nice one. What a f- fantastic single to have as your earliest memory of music.
first record that you bought with your own pocket money um well there's the strict answer to this which sounds very cool is elvis costello i don't want to go to chelsea um there are it is sort of predated by me badgering my mum to lay out money for um sweet music by shawadi wadi which was in an extra box in um a shop in herm bay so that was the first one I really pestered her for. I, I, actually, even before that, I pestered her to buy, um, it was either Rocket Man or Crocodile Rock by Elton. And um, she wouldn't buy them. And, uh, and then I remember watching Top of the Pops and it came up, number two, Elton John. I went, Mom, if we'd have bought that, we'd have been number one. And, <laughs> and uh, uh, so I guess that was early 70s. Sweet Music was about 75. Then after that, I got her to buy um, Life is a Minestrone. And then Christmas Eve, uh, 77, she was going shopping and I handed her my own pocket money for her to buy She's Not There by Santana, the great zombies track. Um, but yeah, the first time I stepped into a shop, Boots in Chatham, um, and handed over money for a record was I Don't Want to Go to Chelsea which is still sounds fantastic 42 and a half years later.
Yeah, that sounded great, wasn't it? That was Elvis Costello in the Attractions, and I Don't Want to Go to Chelsea from his 1978 album, This Year's Model. That's his second album, but his first one under the Attractions name. That's, that's a great record. It still sounds so sort of fresh, doesn't it, now? you know? Yeah, fantastic. That drum intro is amazing. Yeah. So what was the first gig that you went to? There was one on the day that Prince Charles got married to Diana on... Um, so that was... 1981 and there was an open air gig in in rochester that evening on the esplanade so i went with a couple of mates i think it was a band called oubliette they were sort of um uh, a sort of david bowie wannabe sort of band um but then the first sort of proper gig i went to was in december 81 Uh, i wasn't much of a fan but tagged along with some friends there was a little gang of us went up to um the is it the rainbow at Frinsbury Park? Yeah, was it, that was the rainbow, wasn't it? To see the human league and um, who had been sort of nobodies six months earlier, and now all of a sudden they were the, the, the coolest band in the in the land. And three days after we saw them, they hit number one with I think it was Don't You Want Me, and they, they were good. I really enjoyed it. And you know, being in a big auditorium, they had a, a projection show that with clips of Jerry Anderson stuff, so that appealed to me. And um, so, uh, yeah, I quite liked the Human League. And then two weeks later, I saw Prisoners and Milkshakes and my life changed completely. It was at our school sixth form party. The prisoners were all at at my school, uh, but were all in the year above me. So I'd never spoken to any of them, even though I worked with Johnny, the drummer, um, at Sainsbury's. We did a Saturday job. But again, you know, you don't speak to people in, in, a, in a different year, in different class even, let alone different year. I, I think when I say I hadn't ever spoken to Johnny, you know, I probably had in the canteen at Sainsbury's. Said, oh, hello, you, you're, in, you're, in a, you're a drummer, aren't you? Yeah, you, you like kinks, don't you? So, uh, yeah, I think I'd, I think I'd sort of mention to Johnny that I was looking forward to seeing his band. And they, so because they were from the school, they were booked to play our sixth form Christmas party. And then how it worked with those two bands in those days was that if the milkshakes got a gig, they, you know, the milk, the prisoners would gate crash it as support and vice versa. So I, I remember standing at the bar getting a, you know, um, whatever I was drinking then, lager and lime, and then just hearing it, the opening bars to Shimmy Shimmy. And I thought, what the hell is this? Is fantastic. Growing up as a as a Beatles, Kinks, Elvis, Chuck Berry fan, hearing it, this band, I thought, this is fantastic. And uh, the Prisoners went on after them. Um, they were good. They were that was still a month before Jamie joined, so they were still a trio, um, doing so more of a sort of an R and B outfit, doing things like sitting on my sofa, the Kinks track, um, Long Tall Shorty with songs of their own. And I just thought both bands were absolutely fantastic. And I've often thought about this down the years. Obviously they've gone on all to become very dear friends and long-term friends. I've known them, all the members of the band, longer and more closely than any, almost anyone that I was at school with. Uh, but yeah, my life genuinely changed that evening yeah. um, through following the band and how the life's panned out.
that was, I think it was a Wednesday night. We'd heard that the milkshakes were planned the following night at a private party. So uh, me and uh, my pal Mike and John, and we were, we were, that, that was our group. We had a little group called the Rubberman Dozen. Um, they'd liked what they'd heard as well. So we went and gate crashed this party. The, the milkshakes played for three hours. It was amazing. They were just fantastic. Um, it was the only time I heard them do Mona, the Bo Diddley track. They were just superb. Then two days later, three days later, they were playing again in Gravesend. And that was the night that the milkshakes first album was hot off the press. So we laid out three quid each for a copy from Sarah, Miss Ludella Black, selling the first milkshakes album. So that was, so, um, I suppose they, they were sort of Mickey and the milkshakes, weren't they, at that time? Yeah, yeah, and, and um, a five-piece, because uh, Martin was there, the sax player. Certainly for the first few months that I saw them, Martin was always in the group. Mm. Um, and then he gradually, you know, wasn't, wasn't playing on every track, I don't think, and then gradually got phased out. And Martin was um, the sax player in a group that made up a trio of bands with the Prisoners and Milkshakes, the Gruff Men, who the internet and posterity, you know, if you weren't there, you know, a lot of people won't know the Gruff Men. Um, and that was Russ Wilkins, Alan Crockford, Sexton on drums, and Martin Waller on sax. And like, fantastic. You, you, you see, to see all three bands together as a package was, yeah, a real showbiz extravaganza. There was a short period where I, the Gruff Men were my favourite of the three. So, you know, they're very, very dear to my heart. You know, anything that Russ does, I, I tend to like. Mm. Uh, but, um, but yeah, and it stems from... They were, they were just... They were a covers-only band. Just good time, what we sort of know as the, the frat cave sound, that they were doing that in 1980, 82. Well, let's hear a track from both the Milkshakes and the Prisoners' debut albums. Uh, we'll hear uh, the Prisoners' Better in Black, uh, which is the first track from their debut album from 1982, A Taste of Pink. But first of all, let's hear the Milkshakes, and uh, this is After Midnight from their debut album. And, and here it is. This is the Milkshakes. Bye. 
fantastic we've heard uh, the prisoners better in black and before that we heard after midnight from uh, the milkshakes and uh, so Ian I mean obviously you were there right in the heart of this uh, the Midway Delta scene as we've come to know it it's become this sort of yeah. worldwide legendary sort of um, area it's spawned so many sort of um, internationally now famous bands the prisoners the milkshakes and obviously Billy Childish uh, the dentist yourself I mean so many bands have come out of that sort of scene what do you think at the time did you have any idea you know when you were there watching the milkshakes that say Billy Childish would be this internationally renowned artist and musician um, <laughs> I think what I could safely tell you is that out of and it was just a handful of people who used to follow the gigs back then but if you just said someone in this room in years to come is going to become one of the world's foremost and most famous and successful artists. Which one do you think? I, I think the last person anyone would pick would have been Billy's girlfriend at the time. Yeah. Tracy Emin. <laughs> Tracy Emin. But uh, yeah, it's funny what, what cards people get dealt. Yeah. Billy always had a charisma, you know, from the, the yeah, from the first moment I, saw him you know he had a swagger and twinkle in his eye and yeah he was a character but all all of the milkshakes were uh, you know uh, as we know you know there's no uh, no bigger character than bruce brand behind the drums um and you got mickey and bert was the bassist back then and then replaced in due course by russ wilkins so yeah particularly the the russ lineup you've got as I think Dick Scrum once, once described as four John Lennons in a group. That's probably not too far off the mark. And um, don't forget, check the Retrosonic podcast archive because I've got some great uh, podcast specials with uh, Billy Childish um, and obviously Graham Day, Alan Crockford and Wolf Howard um, as a forefathers, sort of going back over their careers. Uh, uh, really worth listening, listening to, especially the Billy Childish one. That's quite eye-opening. So you mentioned you were just sort of in a band yourself for that period when you were seeing the milkshakes and, and the prisoners. And what, what sort of inspired you to to um, become a musician, you know, to take that step from being a fan? Yeah, it's interesting the way you worded that. I, I sort of feel that I've never graduated from being a fan to a musician. I don't, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm a self-taught drummer and, and it's not something that came easy to me as people who would have known me in my younger days, you know, it, I... I'm not one of those people that can pick up sticks and just start playing. 
I just always wanted to be a drummer and, and I, I can't quite remember what my earliest inspiration was. You know, I, I, it might have been seeing Keith Moon on telly. I just, just something about drum kits I've always liked the look of. Again, probably going back, I, you could pinpoint it to, um, I was lucky enough to have parents who had a really good record collection, big pile of 45s of rock and roll, Beatles, Stones and... Um, so I used to sit in front of their radiogram, this great big piece of furniture, French polished, and got shown how to put a record on. And that was it. I was hooked. So I'd, I'd be sitting there playing these records over and over. So I discovered things like Bees Knees by John Barry Seven from there. When I was 11, I had two favourite songs. It was Haunted Castle by The Kingsman and Short Fat Fanny by Larry Williams. There was something about Haunted Castle b-side of the fantastic louis louis it, it's possibly the, the greatest piece of plastic ever made in terms of a, a rock and roll record with just two killer sides haunted castle it's just it's something about it the sound of the drums the sound of the i can picture myself in in the room you know i imagine it's a, a little garage room probably a bit like sun studio um where someone's just set up a little two-track tape recorder stuck a couple of mics in and, you know, these four or five Herberts just doing this instrumental that's got a couple of little drum breaks in it and the way, you know, the the roll and then it, the crash of the cymbal. But yeah, Haunted Castle by the Kingsman is probably where my love of drums really dates from. So did you um, have your drum kit set up at home? You know, what, what did your family think about you uh, becoming a drummer? Yeah, I suppose for years I'd pestered them for a kit and um, eventually got one in the autumn of 79. So I was 14 and a half just before Christmas. I think there was one 
it, it was dirt cheap. It was, I think it was it was either fifteen quid or thirty five quid, which was basically a it was a sort of nineteen thirties bass drum, a pair of nineteen thirties still had calfskin tom toms that were more like bongos, um, <laughs> and uh, uh, quite a nice snare drum with a rickety hi hat and a rickety cymbal, and that was my first kit. But yeah, I, I had no idea how to play it. I had no notion of. <laughs> Drama <laughs> does, you know. I just wanted to be Keith Moon and bash <laughs> hell out of it, um, you know, or or do you know be able to do that amazing role in um, in Haunted Castle? And it was actually at my grandparents' house. We we were lucky that they only lived two doors away from us. It was separate and bash it up there. You know, put a jumper over them to try and minimise the noise. But yeah, they must have been very tolerant, um, as opposed to uh, my pal Ian Harris who um, uh, he's these days a, a professional musician. He used to live in the street behind ours and he had this big kit in his bedroom that was, he used to play it mic'd up. He was actually first drummer with um, Glenn, Groovy Uncle. Oh. Um, he had a group, Glenn had a group called The Offbeats who made one album yeah. in the eighties. And uh, yeah, my old schoolmate Ian Harris was his drummer. So what was the first band that you, you formed? Yeah, that was um, The Rubber Man Dozen, which was um, my pal Mike and my best pal John Gorn, a.k.a. John Agnew, who ended up joining the Milkshakes as their third bassist. Mike had a, a Mike was a really talented singer-songwriter at 14, even. He, he had an older brother who could play guitar. And as an older brother, he, he'd got access to the sort of music that I hadn't heard, um, like Todd Rundgren and this group called Love. Mike had this compilation called Love Masters, and um, that was one of his favourite albums. So whereas I'd had the upbringing of Chuck Berry, Beatles, Stones, all the 60s stuff, 50s and 60s stuff, Mike had all the early 70s singer-songwriter people as influences from his older brothers. And, um, yeah, he, he was really talented. So um, as I had a drum kit, I got drafted in as their drummer, even though, I, you know, it was pretty obvious who the weak link in the group was. Um, I was really struggling to learn. I got reasonably competent in due course, um, enough for us to, to start doing gigs. It was actually Mike and I, we discovered the, what became the legendary MIC club in Chatham. We were just looking for somewhere for our band to play and, Saw this place mentioned in the local paper, went down there, met, met the um, owner, Sandy, and uh, said, you know, can our band play? And he um, went, yeah. And went, oh, OK, so can we sell tickets to our friends? He went, yeah, yeah. We said, and then we thought, oh, OK, we better let on, because we were only 16 ourselves. And he said, um, it might be some of our friends aren't quite 18 yet. And he went, uh, I don't care. <laughs> As long as they find my drink. <laughs> yeah, I hope I'm not grassing Sandy up 40 years on. But, um, yeah, so we, we printed off little tickets, 50p each, and we sold 198 of them. Wow. And so, we yeah, we had £98.50 in our hands, shared it out 30 quid each, um, leaving £1.50 each for our parents to compensate for them giving us lifts everywhere. But 30 quid for doing a gig. It was it was a king's ransom. It was many years before I ever made 30 quid at a gig again. Um, 
and uh, yeah, and we we asked um, the Gruff men if they would support us, and they did. So I'm assuming we didn't give them any money. We probably didn't, but um, and that that was like the first big night. That was the first night at the MIC. So you had 215, 16, 17 year olds in a room yeah. listening yeah. to the Rubber Man Dozen and the Gruff Men, and then. So Alan, being in the Gruff Men, had a word with Sandy and said, "Actually, I'm in another group called the Prisoners. Can we play?" And it and it became it became our our cavern in Chatham. Yeah. Um. You know, Monday nights, Friday nights. You know, seeing all sorts of bands. So you know. And of course, there was the live at the MIC Club album, which is um, yeah, great record. Yeah, it was a disaster. It only it, it was only in operation for I think it was twenty or 21 months as a, as a gig venue for us. In, in January 84, um, the council closed it down because they were building a flyover and the, the place got demolished. Mm. Yeah, so, uh, you know, someone had the good idea to record the last ever night, which was Prisoners Milkshakes, and uh, put out an album. Yeah, real shame, because Medway didn't really have a, a sort of a central hub. Uh, you know, it never uh, didn't have a, a cavern after that. Yeah. Um, so it... it predated the, the dentists. We, there was a couple of little pubs that we played in regularly, but there was never like a sort of a social, you know, a gathering point for everyone after that, yeah. which was a shame. I mean, you mentioned the dentist there, which is um, probably where most people would know you from. Um, tell us a little bit about the band, because they're, they're a band that I that now I'm listening to them. I think, oh, why didn't I know them at the time? You know, because they're, they're such a great band. You know, you've, you've made some fantastic records. Thanks. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the dentists. Um, okay. Well, that um, that grew out of uh, the, the band I mentioned that I was in, the Rubber Man Dozen. Um, I'd stayed in touch with a, a school pal. It was someone I, I'd been at primary school with Mark Matthews and uh, just before we left primary school he moved to Raynham which was about five miles away so it meant he went to a different secondary school and but he and I actually stayed in touch we used to write letters to each other and and then in school holidays I'd go and visit him and so then when you get to sort of 14 15 um, we were both listening to punk rock so uh, I, I was into the Buzzcocks and uh, magazine. He was into the monochrome set and XTC. When I was started, when I was playing with Rubberman Dozen, he'd come over and watch us, and he became our number one fan. He was uh, he loved the group, 
and then he got the bug of you know the, the idea of oh i'd like to have a go at this and so he got a bass guitar and was learning it and then he's got a mate at school who can play guitar and uh, so the three of us had a rehearsal and that was that was me mark and bob we had a they had another mate called brady who had a keyboard a casio keyboard so he joined and we'd do sort of velvet underground and doors covers um Maybe, oh, I think Echo and the Bunnymen, I think we did read it in books. So, and, and probably not unique in, um, right, how on earth do we get a singer? You know, where do we get a singer from? And we try out a few people who didn't really work out. And But we were playing gigs as under various names. One, probably the Ancient Gallery was the one that, that stuck the most. And then um, there was a group in Medway, oh, Split Decision, they were called. Weren't really my cup of tea, but the singer was, you know, it was obviously he could sing and he seemed quite a good, you know, a good front man. And I, d- I don't know if it was Bob or Mark had the idea of we should get him to, you know, ask him if he will sing for us. And and I think simultaneously he'd seen us and thought, I like them. Um, and he, he's, you know, it's almost like we crashed head on into each other of, of him saying, can I join your band? Just as we were about to say, will you join our band? Yeah, so that was the, the, the dentist. And we recorded a demo in someone's front room in Sheerness, you know, supposedly a studio, which ended up becoming Woolly Studio. But it was it was initially in someone's front room that had, a, I don't know, six tracks, something like that. But one of them was this song called Strawberries Are Growing In My Garden and it's winter time. And I was playing the cassette of it in my car with Jamie Taylor from The Prisoners. He's going, what's this? Who's this? I said, it's us. It's the, you know, um, my new band. Well, wow, this is amazing. So we, we had a, you know, a, Jamie was probably the dentist's first ever fan. Um, <laughs> so uh, we had our debut gig the following week. Um, so Jamie was there and uh, I'm, Badger Alan Crockford was there because he very quickly became um, a very good ally of ours. He gave us support slots for the prisoners, which were really good up in London, our first London gigs. And and then when, you know, things were progressing really well, we very quickly got a, a, a big following. Um, probably one of my nicest, happiest memories ever of being in a group is um, we used to play a pub called The Good Intent in Rochester. Um, and we had a little residency playing there every Friday night and it would be in front of a few girlfriends and you, you know a couple of mates you know probably no more than 20 people or so you know and Alan Crockford would be there or Johnny Simons so you you turn up with your gear set your gear up do a quick sound check and then Bob and I, I remember once we said all right we'll pop out for a pint before the gig and um went to a pub nearby called the Greyhound and I thought right okay we better be getting back now got back and opened the door and it was rammed. We just thought, wow, what's this? You know, all of a sudden, you know, it would we'd become big news. That that was a really nice, you know, that's like hearing your, your first song being played on on the radio. And you know, that was a really big moment of and then the dentist had a really big medway following from then on, mm. which was really nice and you know quite a loyal following. Then um, in the early days, we used to put on coach trips. We, we'd actually book a Maidstone district coach, sell tickets for it, and coach up a you know a full coach load of people up to like the Hammersmith, Clarendon, places yeah. like that, <laughs> which was really nice. 
once you've got a following, you then think, and it's a med, very Medway thing, of, right, let's make our own records. Mm. So we put out a single with Alan producing it, Alan Crockford, um, and that, that went well. So then we'd do an album, some people on the pitch. And, uh, yeah, I'm very, very proud of those. I think it's a really great yeah. album. You know, even I can say that, even though I'm on it, it I really love that record. Oh, it's a, it's a great album, you know. But you only released the Thanks. one album, is that right? The one official record? Yeah, in my time with the group, yeah. Um, we did that. Then, it, it, looking back on it, on the dentist career now, they, yeah, made that album and then and then put out a succession of 12-inch EPs. I mean, like, <laughs> that was obviously, you know, the zeitgeist formula at the time, but who wants a 12-inch EP? You know, I either put out an album or put out another seven-inch single, which should have been the way to go. But, yeah, yeah so yeah, yeah. we did... Um, did a six-track, 12-inch, 33 RPM EP called You and Your Bloody Oranges. Um, and we're geared up to do another one um, when <laughs> when I got chucked out of the band. And um, uh, so, yeah, that was after, yeah, two years. So that was the end of that. Well, give us, yeah. um, pick a track from The Dentist that, um, that you're particularly fond of. Uh, okay. I'm very fond of um, a track called She Dazzled Me With Basil which was uh, the, the version that I hope you've got is, is the demo that I played on, um, which was going to be for our EP that um, I got chucked out of the group about four days before we were due to record the EP. So, um, uh, yeah, this is my favourite dentist track. Fantastic. That was The Dentist and She Dazzled Me with Basil. And that's, you can get that on the compilation album. Um, if All the Flies Were One Fly, a collection of rare unreleased dentistry, 1984 to 1995. And um, that's a great compilation as well. There's some 
fantastic tracks on that. And I've always, I always thought, you know, Bob Collins is such a great guitarist. I, I love his guitar work. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, with all respect to everyone else I've ever played with in the band, you know, Bob is the, the number one for me. There's something about his, what he does with the guitar that I, I really enjoy playing drums too. So, I'm, yeah, getting chucked out of the dentist was a bit of a disaster for me. And, you know, I think for the, the group, I, I contributed um, in terms of, yeah, they weren't ever quite the same group. They, again, that doesn't mean they were, you know, not better or anything, but they, they were different in terms of that, that little quirky psychedelic pop. I think we did so well on some people on the pitch. I don't think they ever quite went down that path again. But yeah, then lucky enough, Bob was happy enough to be in another group with me that we formed together called the Ascoin Dascoins. It was a group, but it, it was all Bob's songs with the odd, odd cover. Um, and it was a, initially a four-piece and then a, and then became a power-pop trio. Yeah, they were good. But yeah, we were utterly hopeless at, in terms of how to promote ourselves or get gigs. or So, yeah, we're, we're a yeah, not particularly well-known band. You know, probably only known for... A, we did do a single that, that Billy Childish produced. You know, whatever people think about Billy is that if he likes you, then he will do his damnedest to help you out. And um, so he... he there was something he liked about the Ascoin Dascoins that um, he uh, he said, you know, you've got to record. We've got to get a single out. You know, you've got a great song. Bob's a great guitarist. Let's do it. The Ascoin, the Ascoins, um, yeah, had this great record on Billy Childish's Hangman Records, um, which I'm holding up now, which people on an audio podcast can't see. Yeah, I can see it. You got it. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and then our good friend Lee Grimshaw at Spin Out Nuggets, he released this limited edition single cover of um, "You Burn Me Up and Down," and I had the pleasure of actually seeing you live. Um, um, your reformed version over in San Sebastian at the Medway Legends Weekender, which was a uh, was great because yeah. you know, and I and you you know you realise God, you had some bloody great songs. You know, it was a, a great gig. Thanks. Yeah, I I agree with you. We did. You know, I can say that because. Bob Robum, not me. Yeah, I think Bob's Bob's fantastic. Um, yeah, as we all know, he's a fantastic guitarist, but he actually has got a great frontman persona and voice um, for that sort of power pop, power punk sort of material that that we, that we were doing. Keep watching the Spin Out Nuggets space because um, there might well be a, a greatest hits LP coming in 2021. Oh, Fingers right. crossed. Yeah, fantastic. And uh, so pick a track from... Yaskoin the Haskoins um, that you'd like to play. Okay, should we go for favourite stuff? Um, this this was uh, recorded with Billy Childish at the, the controls um, on the day that we made our our single. That's the biggest thing, uh, and we recorded four tracks. We only put two on the B side, um, and so it wasn't an EP. It was a straight A side, and then Billy and I both agreed on this about three weeks later that we'd actually left off the the best track of the four.
That was Yaskoin the Ascoins and Favourite Stuff. And, oh, yeah, I look forward to, to hearing more, more music from them then. And uh, you said there's going to be an album next year. That would be something to look forward to. Yeah, Lee, Lee is very keen to put the album out. And uh, he's just waiting on us dullards to get our act together with artwork, sleeve notes, and actually finalising the, the track listing. Um, and as soon as we've done that, then, yeah, I think Lee's going to unleash it on the world. Fantastic. And I must just quickly mention uh, Bob's in another band um, called Treasures of Mexico. And again, they've got a couple of great singles released on Lee's uh, Spin Out Nuggets label. So that's yeah. something else to look forward to. Um, and another yeah. one of your projects... Um, which again, I was lucky to, to witness. I was there to see you play live. Was uh, this was a fantastic little story? Um, this is the Nuevo Ramon Five, and I saw yeah. you play at um, your Beatwave Weekender down in Hastings, which we'll talk about later. But uh, tell us about this little side project because it's a fascinating story. Yeah, it is a fantastic story. Um, it's a lovely uh, lady called Natalia Ferran who. Uh, I've known for about 10 years. I met her at um, one of um, Bruce Brand's birthday parties. Oh, yeah, she talked about her, her father a lot, who um, is a jazz fan and um, was a jazz musician. So my, my ears picked up, um, wanted to hear her stories, and she'd say things like her father would, he'd import jazz records. So he'd get hold of jazz records in Barcelona and that they weren't allowed under the Franco regime and it all had to be kept under wraps. So all these fantastic stories. And then um, at some point she said, oh, yeah, my dad had a beat group. I said, oh, wow, that sounds good. She said, yeah, they made a couple of records. Wow, amazing. So, you know, the power of the internet, I go straight on the internet. What were they called? They were called the uh, Ramon Finko. So the Ramon Five, as we would say. And um, went on the internet. And, wow, there's two tracks on the internet. Played them. And I just thought, wow, this is fantastic. Uh, just really fantastic. Um, I didn't know then about sort of the, the yeah, yeah movement um, of sort of a, that swept Europe in the 60s. Uh, so although he was a jazz musician and a very accomplished jazz musician, he said, yeah, you know, music's music. You know, let's, let's do a, a beat group. So they, they were together for a couple of years, made a couple of EPs and... Um, I can't remember exactly what it was, but a light bulb went off, basically because Natalia is a professional singer as well. I said to Natalia, what? these songs are too good, you know, to, to lay hidden. Let's form a band and do your dad's songs. And, uh, yeah, so we recruited um, the fantastic Mole, the world's best drummer on bass, because 
I can only do drums and I wanted to do them. Um, and um, Debbie, my wife, um, can play keyboards. We had her on keyboards and our good pal Zach, um, who lives near us, great guitarist. So we, we formed a, a little, little group to play the songs of Natalia's father, who is still touch wood going strong. Uh, still a very accomplished and renowned jazz musician. But um, yeah, I think we should hear the original, hear Natalia's father's group from 1965. Yeah, go for it. Let's uh, hear the Ramon 5 and Amor Perdido. great track that was uh, the Ramon Five and Amor Perdido from the EP La Ratita and it was, it was great to see you bring these songs to life because um, you're dressed up in sort of this sort of flamenco black and red and yeah. and as I say Natalia was a great great singer and it worked really well and I, I do hope that Thanks. Um, that you get back t- together and do either some more shows or recording when we when we're able to yeah that's that's the plan we're hoping to we did yeah so it's a group that's, that's only ever played two gigs. But yeah, I, I just like that idea that, you know, if anyone else had done it, I'd have been very supportive of, you know, resurrecting a little unknown Spanish 60s group and playing it, doing the songs 55 years later. Well, I mentioned that I saw you play, this was a beat wave um, down in Hastings, and you are, as well as one of your many talents, you're a promoter of um, the Beat Wave Weekender in Hastings, which is a yearly event, uh, which is a sort of spin-off of your regular frat cave night. Uh, it's what days, I suppose, you do, don't you? You do more afternoon shows down in Hastings for the frat cave, am I right? It's a mi- mixture. Um, just before frat cave, we did, Justin had decided that, yeah, the Saturday night works better than, for him. But, yeah, we've done frat caves on almost every day of the week. I think, I think it's just a... Tuesday, we've never done one. But yeah, Sunday afternoons, it used to be a really good session. So you yeah. get a band in yeah. and then DJs. And yeah, we've had some really good party days. Um, if, if any of your listeners have never been to a frat cave or a beat wave, please come down. Um, they're always free. But it's just a way of gathering people, like-minded people together to listen to great groups from across Europe. Um, so we've had fantastic groups, the Hangy Five, the Missing Souls, you mentioned um, um, Baron Four. Um, mine's going to go blank with all the wonderful groups we've had. Well, it's, it's a catalogue of bands that, that feature yeah. on Retro Sonic Podcasts, a lot of our uh, sort exactly, of yeah. favourite bands. Yeah. The Gun Quit, you've had 
down there, haven't you? Oh, oh, gun quick, yeah. I confess, I didn't quite get them the first time I saw them. Um, and, uh, you know, okay. And the second time I saw them, uh, Franklin, uh, you know, like-minded souls up in Scotland, in Edinburgh. <laughs> saw them, I thought, wow, yeah, what a great group. Uh, that's, uh, I don't know, that was about four or five years ago. And then we've had them back two or three more times since, and, and they just... It, it's better and better every time. So it, they become our Christmas band. Um, and hopefully, you know, until um, COVID put the kibosh on, on Frat Cave. Yeah, the last two Christmases we've had Ogunquit and they just raised the roof. And yeah, what a great group. Yeah. Uh, tell us, a, pick a couple of bands. I know it's difficult because you're going to say they're, they're all great mm-hmm. bands, but um, just pick a couple of bands that sort of stood out for you. You, you were sort of pleased to have worked with um, over the um, years. Yeah, I, I think um, certainly the Hangy Five from S- Sardinia created a very great impression on me. And what I'd like to say is um, through the Frat Cave, through becoming good pals with, it's, it's basically Justin's, Justin Ellis's club. Um, I, I don't think myself as a promoter. I'm, I'm just there to, as um, a helper for Justin, uh, it's basically Justin, myself, and Duncan Bray um, as, as the core committee that keeps the Frat Cave wheels going and Beatwave. And we very much consider ourselves cousins of Weirdsville, Hipsville, the Franklin gang, um, people who are putting on the same sort of garage type music um, for nice people. Uh, and it's something that really hits you in the face, as I'm sure you've experienced when you go to Hipsville, you know, you're away for three days with nice people. You know, there's no aggro, there's no asses moaning about whatever, <laughs> kicking off or, you know, which isn't to say people don't get boozed up, but it, it seems to attract people that just want to listen to the music and have good fun. And uh, so that's something that, you know, we very much hope has rubbed off on, on Beatwave. Let's really hope we can do it next year. Um, yeah, you want a couple, couple of bands that we've had down the years. Um, I suppose um, the Fallen Leaves means a lot to me because, um, they're, again, through playing in bands, we were talking earlier about being pals with people like Graham Day and Billy Childish and Mickey and Bruce um, and Alan Crockford, and you, you meet people down the years that you really admire and they become pals. And so Rob Simmons... Um, and both Robs, Rob Green from the Fallen Leaves, very much fall into that bracket. From the punk era, I don't really listen to much punk anymore. I still love Magazine and The Fall. But yeah, probably Vic Goddard and Subway Sect are the big ones for me. And so becoming pals with Rob Simmons was very special to me. And so it was a great thrill to get the Fallen Leaves on in Hastings. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they are a great band. And as you know, we know we've worked closely with them at Retroman blog okay. um, over the years. In fact, we've got another great podcast with them with the two Robs, Rob Simmons and Rob Green, talking about their history. Uh, and that's fascinating because obviously Rob Simmons was there, Subway Sect, right in the very ex- yeah. UK punk explosion. You know, he was there. Yeah. So he's got a really yeah. fascinating insight on... Yeah, and better than all of them. Yeah, and he is great. And what a fantastic guitarist, you know. And Yeah. He um, and he was actually well, you probably know he was actually inspired by to to get back to playing the guitar again because he hadn't played the guitar for years by by seeing Billy Childish. Um, he, That's that right. Was a big yeah. Inspiration for him to get back, so it all ties in nicely to to the podcast. I think you know. 
Yeah, and of course they've um, they've got Buddy Ascot from the Chords on drums now, and he's uh, a good friend of mine, Buddy. We've got some great podcasts with him talking about his time uh, with the Chords, and um, uh, check out the Retrosonic Podcast Archive. You know where you'll um, hear all these great people talking about their musical histories as well. Well, let, let's pick a track um, from the Fallen Leaves, uh, one of your favourites. How about Did You See Her? Oh, great track. Let's. Uh, Let's hear that. Did you see her from their second LP, That's Right? This is The Fallen Leaves. great choice that was a fallen leaves and did you see her and uh, any other bands that you particularly enjoyed working with at uh, frat cave and beat wave yeah well the nuns or ye nuns um which um, i'm very very proud and privileged to be married to the drummer bongo debbie um who has also been in the x-men and head coaches down the years um had a much more illustrious career than myself in show business and uh, I, I just think I've seen the nuns many times down the years with Deborah, and it's six fantastic musicians, six fantastic personalities on stage um, playing the songs of the monks fantastically well. They're always great, you know. Uh, they've never been made mediocre. Never just go through the motions. You, you, you know, you always get a fantastic show. And always leave me wanting more because there's only a finite number of monk songs. And um, let's hear Cuckoo. Oh my god. 
And that was Ye Nuns and Cuckoo from their None More Black album. Officially sanctioned by Eddie Shaw, original Monk, who uh, actually got got them to uh, record a couple of his songs that, that were never ever recorded by the Monks. And they monked or nunned them up, so that was good. Another band I was really knocked out to get to Beat Wave was the Wildebeests. Um, we mentioned my love of Russ Wilkins earlier in the show. Um, but again, that's another group I've never seen do anything other than a sensational show. Again, three fantastic personalities um, with John on bass and fantastic Lenny on drums. You know, with Russ, you, you, you get full value for money every time. Can we hear a Wildebeest track? Of course, you know, take your pick. I'm happy to play whatever. The one that always gets my toe tapping more than others is Lucinda, which is a John's track. Again, author, musician, promoter, and uh, you're also a, a DJ. Tell us a little bit about your your DJing and some of the sort of favourite songs yeah. you like to like to spin. DJ for me is someone with a good collection of records who plays them. That's it. You know, there's no science or magic to it. It's just you get other people's genius and uh, you pass it on to others. I tend to play places where it's people gathering in a bar to have a good night out with their friends and a good chat and there's just music on in the background and then every now and again you get someone come over and go wow what is this and you can say hey it's called california soul by the fifth dimension or um, whatever i did the very same thing i was in a record shop in here 
my very good pal, um, Trent from um, The Mummies. He um, was staying with us in London when they were over on a family trip a few years ago. And we went record shopping in Stoke Newington. And in the shop, they were playing a, a record. I thought, wow, this is fantastic. What is this? And Trent says, oh, I know what this is. This is, uh, you know, this is Surface Street by the Allisons. Wow, fantastic. And what a wonderful guy. Coming through my letterbox about a month later was Surface Street by the Allisons, all the way from the States that um, Trent had bought for me. And, and that's one that's always in my DJ box. Let's hear it. a great track that was the Allisons and Surface Street and I, think, I don't know much about them just their tracks from 1963 and they were an all-girl band yeah so, I know nothing about them either other than they've made one absolute kick-ass single there yeah that yeah. Um, yeah it's very much a, a Frat Cave type song talking of Frat Cave playing records at Frat Cave I'm sure I'm not the first person to um, celebrate the uh, the genius of Little Richard but it doesn't matter what you play whether it's the the Sex Pistols, and even the Mummies, or Billy Childish. You put Little Richard on, and I'm lucky enough to inherit half a dozen of his singles from the 50s, the original UK pressings from my parents' collection. You put these on, and it it just, the whole building just rocks when you play something like, um, you know, Long Tall Sally, or The Girl Can't Help It, or Lucille. There's just something about the, the way that those records are made and cut, and with, you know, the great genius little Richard blasting it out. Yeah, it's instant party every time. Well, let's have a little instant party now and uh, let's pick your choice of uh, little Richard and the girl can't help it. Turn the toe. Can't help it. The girl can't help it. If she got a lot 
she's smiling. Beefsteak become well done. Can't help it, girl, can't help it. She made Grandpa feel like 21. Can't help it, the girl can't help it. The girl can't help it, she was born to please. Can't help it, the girl can't help and it. That's great, isn't it? I mean, it's just so much energy and joy in the in, in the music. Yeah. You know? And your next choice is an interesting one. Again, something that um, was new to me. This is uh, Gary McFarland and Fried Bananas. Yeah, yeah. This this is um, this is we're very much in the Herbie Greensmith territory now. So um, yeah. I've always liked um, what some people would sort of term easy listening. And I think it stems from like TV themes as a kid and a love of John Barry music. Um, so it's just music that's not rock and roll or not punk or not rock. It's the stuff I like the best, really. Yeah, I heard of Gary McFarland because somebody had made a documentary on him and I came across this thing on the net of this guy who was uh, very well known in the American jazz scene in the, 50, in the 60s, rather. Um, vibes player, and Vibes is my favourite jazz instrument. And he's very successful and he works with big names and uh, as a composer and arranger, made a lot of albums. And then one day he's drinking in a New York bar in, I think, 1971 and drops dead. Mm. Except that his drink had been spiked and no one's ever solved the case. Um, I don't know what, you know, I don't know too much about how badly the, the investigation was handled, but yeah, it's never been solved. Absolutely tragic. He was only in his thirties, um, and um, but his his single "Fried Bananas" is another one of those that's always in my bag, and it's a little bit of like a Herbie Greensmith signature tune.
tell us about your own sort of most memorable gig, you know, for, for better or worse. Are there any sort of specific gigs that stand out in the memory? Yeah, I've, we haven't really talked much about Armitage Shanks, which is very dear to me. I've been in them for 26 years now, on and off. There's, um, we've laid low for several years for various reasons, but we're still officially together. Armitage Shanks, as I think your listeners will know, is very much Dick Scum and his granny on bongos. We've had a fluid lineup down the years, but um, I've been with him for most of the last 26 years. Um, he's a great guy who deserves to be better known than, than he is. He's a great lyricist, and we've had a lot of good times down the years. And we've done five tours of the States, which people sometimes are surprised to hear. You know, little small scale things that we've done off our own back, traveling around and meeting lovely people that you would never otherwise have encountered without music being involved. Um, at Shanks, we were playing a lot in London in the mid-90s to uh, not much acclaim, um, but we put at records out, um, Ian Damage, Damage Goods, Vinyl Japan, a few other labels would put out our records, and um, they'd find their way stateside. And we, we sort of found through a chance meeting um, with a guy called James Dunbar, that we actually have got fans in America. People actually do like us over there. And uh, so he um, booked us a little tour of the States on the Eastern San Francisco Bay Area. So playing the, we played San Francisco, Vegas and LA and um, loved it and got on really great with Scott and James, his pal. And uh, so did it again the following year. And then just kept going back each year, so um, and had a had a little holiday. And um, there was a fantastic lady called um, Sarah Josephson who does a show, Gorilla Got Me, Gorilla Radio. She's from Cambridge, Massachusetts, Cambridge, Boston, and um, she kept saying, "Come over this side, you know, come over to the uh, East Coast." So we did in 2007, I think. She really pulled out all the stops. She had us on her radio show, plugged the show, put us on with the best local band. And we filled up a, a bar with people queued up outside called, I think it was called the Abbey Lounge, Cambridge, Massachusetts. And we played to about 300 people, I think, one Saturday night. It was just fantastic. And it, and it's sort of gigs like that that make all the uh, lesser moments worthwhile. So the humour translates to the US, does it? I mean, after all, Armitage Shanks are responsible for records such as uh, Smash the Cistern and uh, Urinal Heap. So they they, <laughs> they get the they get the humour over there. They don't actually. They oh, they right. got no idea what Armitage Shanks is. But except that when you're over there, you bump into people and they go, "Hey, I didn't know what your name meant until I I came over. I was in London, and uh, you know, I went to the John and." Uh, and I saw Armitage Shanks. Yeah, so, <laughs> they thought it was a new line in merchandise, did they? Like, uh, <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah, yeah. Well, pick a track. I mean, there's loads to choose from. Always, all like you said, fantastic lyrics. So, but let's let's pick a good example. There is. Um, well, let's have our, our latest single. Um, it's proof that um, there is life in the old dog. This this is a track. Well, actually, our new single. We recorded it in two thousand and nine. So it's. 10, 11 years old now, and but it was didn't see the light of day until um, last year. It's a Spin Out Nuggets production um, called Look Out, Here Comes Uncle John. Look out, here comes Uncle John. Look out, here comes Uncle John. 
a big beery face. Look out, here comes Uncle John. A proof skull, bottled in prison. Look out, here comes Uncle John. Look out, here comes Uncle John. He's got his syrup on and his medallion. Slip on loafers and socks so white. He's gonna drink all night. Look out, here comes Uncle John. A proof skull, bottled in prison. Look out, here comes Uncle John. Look out, here comes Uncle John. Wife took the kid and moved to Wales. Still drove his cab up the 18 aisles. Shacked up with a scrubber in Stodland Town. Shagged her daughter when she weren't around. Look at it comes, Uncle John. Approved school, bustled in prison. Look at it comes, Uncle John. Look at it comes, Uncle John. Next up, you've um, picked a gig that you it was not your own gig. This is uh, almost like a gig that yeah. you wish you, <laughs> you wish you were at. Tell us about this one. Absolutely, yeah. It, without hesitation, when as sometimes you get asked, you know, when they invent a time machine, what what gig are you going to? And um, as much as I'd like to see Jimi Hendrix in London in 1966, or um, uh, certainly love, at, you know, on their home turf in 66, 67, without hesitation, it's um, being in Vegas to hear um, Sammy Davis Jr. with the Buddy Rich Orchestra, um, it's an album I got in a flea market in about 1984, and I was a Sammy Davis fan because my parents liked him. We had a, uh, a couple of Sammy Davis albums that I really liked. And Buddy Rich, I can't remember when I first became aware of him, but it first became apparent that I was into drums. You know, parents and relations would go, oh, you should listen to Buddy Rich. And luckily, I got to see him twice in concert, met him both times. Uh, the first time I went with Johnny Simons, the prisoner's drummer, we drove to Southend and saw him at the Westcliff Pavilion and met him afterwards. And um, it was great. He said, um, he came out and went, well, what, what are you two kids doing here? We were 17, both of us at the time. He says, you haven't come to see me, have you? And we said, yeah, 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 you know. And he was really knocked out that two 17-year-old kids, want, you know, in 1984, was still wanting to hear his big band music, um, which was something he was very into, was keeping his music alive and and spreading it to uh, younger generations. We're going to hear a track, aren't we? It's the opening track of the gig that Sammy introduces. And to me, it's just electric to, to be in that room and hear this live. It was recorded in the small hours of the morning. Um, all the staff that worked in hospitality and show business in Vegas, um, Sammy just said, you know, they need to unwind and have a good time as well. And so he put this gig on at whatever it was, half four in the morning. Yeah, sensational. Let's hear it. Uh, this is Sammy Davis Jr. with Buddy Rich and Come Back to Me. That's Buddy Rich. Hear my voice where you are. Take a train. Stay- 
steal a car, hop a freight, grab a star, come back to me. Catch a plane, catch a breeze, on your hands, on your knees. Swim or fly, only please, come back to me. On a mill in a jet, with your hair in a net or a towel ringing wet, I don't care. This is where you should be. From the hills, from the shore, ride the wind to my door. Turn highway to dust, break the law if you must. Move the world only just Come back to me Come back to me So you've met, obviously, one of your great drumming heroes there. Um, as a musician or a DJ, have you ever shared a bill with any of your sort of favourite musicians or your musical icons? Um, I knew you were going to ask this question, and, and I sort of uh, haven't in terms of playing. Um, the dentist played with Edwin Starr, um, which was a big thrill, but we didn't get to meet him. Probably the nearest I can come up with is, um, I mentioned the monochrome set early on, who was uh, Mark Matthews. That was his favourite group when he and I were first sort of forming what became the dentists. And little did either of us know that, yeah, 30 odd years time, I'd be on stage with the monochrome set playing maracas for them. Yeah, that was that was that was really odd. That was uh, a really good thing yeah, to happen. Yeah, and that was another one that I, I was there to witness. Uh, not that I'm your number one fan, sort of stalking you all <laughs> over these sort of <laughs> gigs, but I was there. That was at the I think their 40th anniversary gig at the Lexington, wasn't it? With Leicester Square had come back. Yeah, and, um, and then you ended up. I was watching the the, the, the band because I'm a big fan as well. And then suddenly you appeared on stage and uh, yeah, were you, maraca- were you playing maracas or um. Yeah, I did Maracas on Apocalypso and um, and on the uh, the final track, title escapes me. I was playing um, uh, this weird sort of, I've forgotten what it's called. It's like a woodblock thing. Uh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> professional percussionist. Yeah. yeah, I was playing a woodblock thing. Yeah, <laughs> but anyway, yeah, we, that came about because um, Debbie also plays drums in Would Be Goods, who uh, have got very strong links are almost like family with with the monochrome set with andy warren being bass player in both groups andy warren was mark matthews absolute number one bass guitar hero when he was first starting out so it's just funny how how cards get dealt and what showbiz grows up down the years yeah i'm a big fan you know i've also put on monochrome sets at the retroman blog night at the half moon putney quite a few years ago it was one of my first gigs and i was uh, really uh chuffed to work with them as well you know fantastic yeah. band and, and uh, they're still great live aren't they they've yeah. still got it and so let's hear monochrome set and apocalypso and um you can get your your little woodblock thingy out now as well and accompany us <laughs>
reclining chair Big box of soup shard for me to devour Antique grandfather clock phone in the shower Hurrah for the missiles from heaven's gate They sink and pay gaily That's a great track, uh, Monochrome Set, Apocalypso, uh, taken from their second album, Love Zombies. You've also picked a track from one of your idols, uh, Mark E. Smith and The Fall. Yeah, I haven't shared a bill with him, although my wife has. Um, that was a big thrill. The, the nuns are all um, big Fall fans, as am I. And, and yeah, they got to play with the mighty Fall in Brixton in 2014 or 15. Um, but I got to meet Mark, Mark, my mate Mark, um, in uh, about 2009, I think, when I was working for the Press Association. I sort of somehow managed to wangle to interview him. Yeah, and he was very sweet as pie. Yeah, he was really good. It was about the time his biography came out, or the, auto, the, the ghost-written autobiography, Renegade. And uh, yeah, signed it to Ian from your pal, Mark E. Smith. So, uh, yeah, that was good enough for me. So I, I've got good memories of, of meeting a, a, a hero. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I've loved the fall since about 1981 when um, How I Wrote Elastic Man came out. And you picked a great track, which is from 1997, and this is a good good song, um, I'm a Mummy from the LP Levity, yeah. which is a, it's a great dance track. Fantastic, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. let's hear it. Somebody somewhere who wasn't afraid of me. I'm a mummy. 
I've got this thing, uh, I've got this rule, no matter how much you're a fan of a band, you know, um, you've got your favourite bands. It, I, I always think that there's very few what I would call perfect albums, you know, like, no matter how, if you're honest with yourself, if you look at your, your favourite bands, look at the, their sort of back catalogue and how many albums would you say are perfect, you know, where you've got, I'm talking from the cover art to the production, to the track listing, to the, the no filler, there's not a track that you'd skip, you know, there's, there's not that many that I think, you know, I probably never mind the bollocks, you know, maybe Parallel Lines by Blondie, Soundtrack of Our Lives, Behind the Music, but give us one of your examples. Yeah, this was the easiest question a lot, didn't have to think about this one iota. Yeah, I can only really come up with one other album that possibly gets close, other than that Buddy Rich and Sammy Davis one. Vic Goddard's What's the Matter Boy is, is close for me to being perfect, but uh, yeah, there there is only one. Not not The Kinks, not Scott Walker even, but yeah, it's Forever Changes. I love just everything about it. It's just perfect. And a big thrill for me, yeah, talking about meeting heroes. I never got to meet or even see Arthur, but um, I've seen uh, Johnny Eccles with um, the, you know, Love Revisited twice. And yeah, it's fantastic for me. Yeah, got to meet him and had my photo done with him. Johnny Eccles, what a dude. Yeah, that for me, it's as good as seeing Arthur. Johnny is for me as much but all of them in, in the, uh, involved with this record, they're all gods to me. Yeah, it's a classic album and, uh, again, hard choice, but um, we can't play the whole album, unfortunately, so, so give, us a, give us a track. Yeah, The Daily Planet. That's great. That's love. The Daily Planet from Forever Changes, and I, 
a little dedication to my mate Wayne out in Sweden, who's got uh, the album cover tattooed on his arm in all technicolor glory. Wow. <laughs> it means that much to people. Um, yeah. But fantastic choice. And, and again, another difficult one, because this is a, we could do a whole episode on great 45s. I mean, you picked, one at the beginning, like Louis Louis by the Kingsman, you know, when you think of that and, and the great B-side Haunted Castle and uh, yeah. the great sort of 45. Give us one of your favourite for a couple of your one. 45. <laughs> yeah. Con- conversely, it, where there is only one perfect album, yeah, there are dozens of perfect singles. But, um, yeah, you can narrow it down. Um, I, you, you know, there's A Hard Day's Night that is not only my favourite Beatles single, but it's got my favourite Beatles song on the B-side. You know, just fantastic. We had a Say a Little Prayer earlier, perfect. Jeepster, perfect. Um, there's about half a dozen Slade singles that are perfect. Even up, coming up to the modern day, Cruel Bird by our good friends, the Galileo Seven. Yeah. You know, perfect single, fantastic pop single. Billy Fury, Mamas and Papas. Um, I Saw the Light by Todd Rundgren, you know, What Is Life by George Harrison. But let's, let's go for Eight Miles High. Brilliant. That was The Birds and Eight Miles High. And I like the way you cheated there by sort of shoehorning in about 20 singles when yeah. you're only meant to have one. You know, yeah. rules are there to be broken. <laughs> yeah. A punk rocker at art. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, I'm, I'm, now, I'm now holding up, um, which you can't see on, on, in the podcast, I'm holding up this fantastic book, Taking Candy from a Dog by Vic Templer, one of your aliases. And this is, a, this is fantastic. This really hit a chord with me because for and I think for anyone that's sort of growing up in the in the sort of 70s um early 70s it's a semi-autobiographical book I don't know would you call it I mean it's um there's, it's there's more sort of than semi-autobiographical yeah but there are bits of fiction in it as well it started off life as a 
little collection of stories. I'd always liked writing stories. I used to, as a kid, I think my nan got hold of a, a big wad of yellow plain paper from work once, and I used to, and I got a stapler for Christmas, and I used to fold about three of these sheets over and staple them, and bingo, I've got a book, and then I'd write stories in these books. You know, I always had ambitions to be a writer. Again, perhaps inspired by Billy Childish, who would do his own books of poetry, him and Sexton, and it's a punk rock thing of, well, you know, you don't have to go to university to do this. You don't even need a publisher to do this. You've just got to write it down and do it yourself. So it's a very punk rock sort of sniffing glue type ethos. But Billy was very supportive. And so I did these stories and I did a few on my childhood. I think probably as following from reading an American writer called John Fante, who had been sort of rediscovered by Charles Bukowski, and as people have said to me, oh, yeah, your book reminds me of my family. That, that was the whole idea. I thought my family was special in terms of the characters in it. But it's obviously that, you know, most families, when you're a kid, they're special. That's, that's all they know. And I always liked hanging out with my grandparents and their friends. So it's people who are a lot older than me. But hearing their stories... I was never one of those kids who go, oh, grown-ups are boring, you know. I, I always liked hearing their funny little quirky tales. So Taking Candy from a Dog is me writing about being a kid in the 70s, doing the things that kids do. And then and there is a bit of a progression of being more a kid that's out playing football in the park to being a kid that's starting to listen to punk rock and starting to buy 45 RPM records like... Spiral Scratch by the Buscocks. I'd be waiting at the supermarket, standing in line with the beans. Cash off. I'd be waiting at the post office for sticking pictures of the queen. Sneak off. And I'm waiting for you to get yourself good and ready. And why I love the book, um, I mean, I actually got it for Christmas and I was sitting there with 
with my family and I started off, I was just reading it and it's, it got me straight away because it, it starts with um, yourself or a middle-aged yeah. man up in his father's loft, sort of rummaging around for a, a sort of <laughs> a monkey glove puppet. And, and it's, it's like a standing joke with my family because every time I go and see my, my, my family, I, I have to go up in the loft because I, there's a record up there that I've got to get down or there's a book that I've left up there. And it's, it was all these little things that, um, that, that sort of sparked off really warm memories, you know. And uh, I, I mean, I just picked out a couple of things here that um, I'm sure some people of a certain age will appreciate, like, you know, your sure shot hockey and Sabutio and um, yeah. Taser, Airfix models, you know, the $6 million man, you know, and uh, these lovely sort of warm memories of um, sort of happy childhoods. And uh, and it's, it's a great book because it starts off, it's, it's, there's no cynicism about it. It's just a nice sort of, you know, you're, you're talking about your family in a nice warm way. Then it gets into a slight bittersweet ending, you know, um, you know, with the closing of the Chatham docks and people moving away, relocating because of work and obviously family and yeah. things. And, and then punk comes along. So it's just a great little uh, story. And um, uh, that's published by Blackheath Books, who are an independent publisher. And uh, you can read a review of the book on Retroman blog as well. I'll go into it in a little bit more detail, but it's, it's a great story. Thank you. Yeah, that's, that's very nice of you to say so. My childhood was was very happy, so there's no need to invent any bitterness, or there was no other side to it as as a kid. And you know, um, none of the worries that come with being an adult, you know, they don't didn't exist to me. And I, and I know that not everyone had a, such a nice childhood, but um, uh, you know, fortunately, a lot of people do. I mean, I love the line in there where which sums up the time for me. You know, it's like you say. Lager is sort of um, considered continental and treated with suspicion, you know. I mean, this, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's hard to believe, isn't it? You know, back in those days, like things like lager and uh, be proper coffee. You know, like now there's loads of coffee shops and things. And, yeah. And, and food, there's like Angel Delight and sort of Black Forest Gatto and processed yeah. food. Yeah, your was some... as exotic as it got, yeah. <laughs> That's right. Uh, it's a fantastic book. And um, are you, you planning any more? You, have you got any more ideas? Uh, oh, I uh, do keep a notebook and I jot stuff down, but whether whether I'm going to get to the stage of putting out another whole book, I don't know. Yeah. I'd like to. Well, I hope so. You know, it's, it's, it's yeah, a great thanks. book. And it's coming out for Christmas. You know, people are going to want something to yeah. do. Lockdown. We've all had a crap year. Yeah. yeah. Read a book. It will cheer you up. And you get um, you get a free badge, lovely badge. Yeah. Got uh, actually, there aren't many of the badges left. But oh, yeah, yeah, so get, yeah, get in quick. Order the books now and uh, you get yeah. a book and a badge. You get your Luke the Sock Puppet Monkey badge. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> it's fantastic. Yeah. Well, that's been great talking to you, Ian. A fascinating journey through your musical adventures. Oh, and your writing adventures and your promoting adventures. And uh, thank you. We look, we look forward to what's coming next. And uh, is there any way that people can check on what you're doing? If you, I suppose, the Frat Cave and the, have got a website. I spend way too much time on Facebook, so uh, yeah, people can always see what I'm up to on there. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, unfortunately, you know, there's not much happening in in the Frat Cave world at the moment. But yeah. As soon as something does happen, it'll be on all over Facebook, I imagine. Yeah, Frat yeah. Cave. Um, Beatwave stuff turns up on the Frat Cave page, so we don't have a separate Beatwave page. So, yeah, keep an eye on that. Keep an eye on um, uh, Nuevo Ramon Cinco and uh, the Dirty Contacts. We haven't mentioned my other band. And Roast Beef Attack is my uh, other new venture with Bob Collins on guitar okay. two of my french pals and justin is in that and 
his girlfriend Louise and that's another little uh, venture well we'll put up a, um, a feature to go along with the podcast on retromanblog.com thank I'll you put down all the links to uh, all the various ventures that uh, Ian's involved with um, I said there'll be a link on where you can order taking candy from a dog and and more so and there'll be a full track listing as well so please investigate all the music further just like to say um thank you ian and um to end the episode let's just play out on a on a this is the play something to play out over the end credits you know something that sort of sums you up as a as a dj yeah well this this is a this is a good way of finishing uh finishing with a bang this is i can't remember where i first heard this this particular version um, but yeah, I'm a big um, Lalo Schifrin fan. Love the Bullet soundtrack. But um, this old cat, Louis Jordan, pulled some amazing version out of the bag. So um, yeah, let's hear him. This this is as dirty a sax as Little Richard ever had on any of his records. Let's go for Bullet by Louis Jordan. Great. Well, let's hear it. Well, thanks, Ian. All the best to you. Cheers, Steve. 